0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
1: Welcome to Politics is Everything, a podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Kara Ong-Waley. Activists have been campaigning behind the scenes for years now to change the U.S. Constitution in order to limit the federal government with implications for education, health care, and the environment. In this episode, we talk with former Senator Russ Feingold, president of the American Constitution Society, and Peter Prindeville, a non resident fellow at the Stanford Constitutional Law Center, about their new book, The Constitution in Jeopardy. Feingold and Prindeville trace the origins and developments of Article 5 and its provisions. They also discuss the ways in which it embodies an underappreciated tension that the Constitution both reflected and embedded between institutionalist theories of democracy and governance and more radical grassroots theories of resistance and change. They caution that a constitutional convention could run away and fundamentally alter our nation's laws and civic life. Enjoy the conversation. Your book really is timely, it's important, it's relevant, and it raises so many important questions that we as a a country, um, as as a global community, uh, really need to be considering, especially with rising political violence, um, both in the United States and around the world. Um, So one of the objectives uh, that the framers of the Constitution were trying to do was to anticipate and overcome where the ancient republics had failed. Um, So one of the ways through which the ancients had failed was through civil wars. And it was civil wars that destroyed the Roman Republic and that was mostly responsible for Athens' loss for Sparta. So the the framers of the Constitution understood that violence threatens a political community, it threatens the polis, and you describe in your book that they understood the need for for a mechanism uh, that would allow for what you called a a bloodless revolution. I wonder if you both can set the stage for us in talking about the tensions that the framers grappled with in their attempts to accommodate both stability and continuity that Madison was a large proponent of, um, as well as uh, the prospects of violence that would result from an unamendable constitution, on the other hand.
2: Well, I'll, I'll kick it off and just saying you know, these people were obviously products of, of the Enlightenment, incredibly well-informed about uh, people like Montesquieu and Locke and some of the theories about uh, how government should work. And it led to them uh, actually attempting something that had essentially never been attempted, which was a a written constitution. The other thing, though, was the violence and the possibility of violence wasn't some kind of a theoretical thing for them. The blood was laying around them. They had just been through a, a very rough thing with their former mother country. And the question was, is there a way for the first time basically in human history to create a mechanism in a written constitution where you could actually amend the constitution without bloodshed. And so uh, this is where the idea of a bloodless revolution comes from. Clearly the founders considered this to be one of the most important provisions in the constitution and we liberally cite George Washington and (laughs) Madison and others specifically saying that they don't think their generation knew it all or would know it all that you had to be able
0: to amend the Constitution. Peter? We start the book, again, uh, as you mentioned, the, the first chapter is called Bloodless Revolution. And we start the book actually during the Revolutionary War, and that was a very um, distinct decision, not starting as many books about the Constitution do, starting with the, the convention of 1787. And we look at how citizens during the Revolutionary War making state constitutions, were are grappling with this question about how is it that uh, a community that believes in the importance of fundamental law to uh, constitute a polis, how do we actually make that real? And if we desire to change the, the nature of the political order, how can we do it without having to resort to the, to the bloodshed that was, as Russ said, laying all around. And so uh, there were uh, false starts and, and uh, you know, interesting debates, because it really was a novel question. Uh, the, the state constitutional amendment provisions and then Article 5, which is the amendment provision in, in the federal constitution, which would be drafted a decade hence, uh, really were the first attempts in world history uh, to draft constitutional amendment mechanisms not premised on unanimity, at least for a federal constitution uh, in, in regards to this, the uh, 1787 convention. and So it really was a remarkable time.
1: I, I, wonder for, I wonder if you can remind us, what are the two mechanisms in Article Five of the Constitution?
0: So uh, amendments need to be both proposed and then ratified Article 5 provides that amendments can be proposed in one of two ways. The first is by Congress. If 2 thirds of each House of Congress propose an amendment, it then is sent to the the people of the states for ratification. And then there's a second proposal mechanism, which is the focus of the book, which is uh, a convention convened under Article 5. Once the amendments are proposed to the states, they then need to be ratified by the people of the states and 3 quarters of the states.
1: So I wonder if you can talk a little bit, and you go into detail in the book, so buy the book so you can, you can really understand the debates of the time. <laughs> um, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit um, about how they arrived on these two provisions, because these are very different mechanisms. One is a very top-down approach, and another is a bottom-up approach. So how did we get to that point?
2: Well, we studied this pretty closely because we believe a lot of the understanding about Article 5 is, is flawed. Uh, a lot of people think. Uh, that you know, really the main idea here was that Congress would do it and that it was sort of a throwaway to throw in a Constitutional Convention. That does not reflect the proceedings at the Constitutional Convention at all. The convention began with a certain state proposing something, that would be this state, the Virginia Plan, and in the Virginia Plan, there was of course a provision to allow amendments, but it, was, it had nothing to do with Congress. In fact, it explicitly said that the national legislature would not be part of it. So, you know, the plan was put on the table and the Committee on Detail was created. And uh, over the several, the, that hot summer, the Committee on Detail came back and, uh, with a proposal that again did not involve Congress passing constitutional amendments. It said that uh, Congress would call the convention, but it was only by route of for leading toward a constitutional convention. Uh, and so it comes out this way. But a certain gentleman named Alexander Hamilton said, no way, he said that the only way to have good constitutional amendments is to have the national legislature to do it because they're the only ones that are gonna understand the whole of, of of how what our country needs and the states would move things backward. And he persuaded, I think it was a nine to one, he persuaded them to knock out completely the idea of a constitutional convention. And that's where it was heading until George Mason and a few others basically said, You do that and we're out of here. And so they cut a deal. And the deal was to add back a provision that would allow a constitutional convention uh, by two-thirds of of the states applying. And Congress is not given any discretion. We just stress this in the book. The rules for the congressional amendments are clear as a bill. It's limited to whatever they say. It's two-thirds, two-thirds, three-fourths. There is nothing. To tell us basically how this convention is supposed to work, uh, but but that so finally they just quietly uh, agreed to this, and I think we both agree, although we have great reverence for the Constitution, that it was probably not done very well. It was somewhat like the Electoral College, and that's why we're kind of in this mess
0: right now.
1: Professor Satt, oh, go ahead. Uh,
0: to the point of it not being done very well, there were comments. Um, James Madison, in his notes, remarks that uh, contemporaneously uh, that the convention mechanism was flawed. Added at added at the last minute, as it was, was flawed uh, because there weren't sufficient what he called constitutional regulations as to quorum and form and the like. And so, it's clear that this was a last minute compromise. Uh, And that it inserted an an inherent tension into the Constitution Mm -hmm. by endorsing two different theories of, of constitutional change, both the, the, from the top down, but also from the bottom up, as a means to check the regime, and it's a tension that we've really never come to terms with.
1: You know, the, the constitution itself wasn't perfect. You cited George Washington. Uh, you know, after the convening of the convention, said, you know, it, it's not perfect, but we've we've ensured that there's a mechanism to make it better. And Professor Sabado has a book that was written 15 years ago called "A More Perfect Constitution," and you thought of this idea of using Article Five. Um, so, what is your, what was your your thinking in terms of ensuring um, a greater legitimacy of the of the Constitution by using this process for amendments and, and going through the states?
3: Well, I wrote it in two thousand five, two thousand six. It was published in two thousand seven, and so it predates uh, lots of things that have happened since that have made our politics more difficult mm-hmm. and made compromise more difficult. Uh, made it almost impossible, I think, for people to come together about basic things. Um, uh, so, you know, I proposed 23 changes to the Constitution. I'm shocked that not one of them has been passed <laughs> and ratified It's an outrage. It really is, uh, but uh, that's, that's the truth. Now, I'll tell you what their book did for me. It clarified the fact that what may may have once been a more innocent opportunity for change has become a very dangerous uh, potential precipice for the whole country. There are a lot of things that could could uh, produce fracture in the United States, permanent fracture. Uh, but that would be one of them, because as uh, Russ just mentioned, there's no limitation on what will actually happen at that convention? And this connects to so many other examples in the Constitution. I'm not criticizing it, they were under pressure, and they had to deliver something relatively, well, more or less quickly, at least for that age. Uh, but the Supreme Court, it would have been nice if they had allocated, Supreme. once the original court members were appointed, it would have been nice if every president got two appointments. Uh, just to give one example, the Electoral College is a nightmare. Don't need to go into that, it was particularly awful as they, as they originally set it up and on and on. There are so many pieces that maybe made sense for the 1790s but certainly don't make sense today. But you have to, you have to measure the opportunity for positive change there and compare it to the potential <laughs> disaster that could happen if we actually had a convention. And uh, I would prefer to delay it to a more quiescent period in American life if there ever is one. It will be up to the young exactly. people in this room.
1: Yeah. So I, I would like to I want to lean into um, Russ, you, you mentioned the bargain that was struck around Article five, and, and I want to lean into this question because you also outlined the ways in which uh, in your book, the ways in which the Constitution defined who is part of the political community um, and who is who is circumscribed from it. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about the specific ways in which the odious bargain, as you call it in your book, privileged the states uh, and uh, the political elites of the South to perpetuate enslavement um, and and protected them. So Article 5 protected them in many ways until at least 1808.
2: One of the interesting things about our Constitution, if you you read it, is it, it is not, when there's an amendment, they don't strike out language and replace it. So everything's in here. Three-fifths man, horrific provisions are in here. And if you read Article 5, you'll notice that there are th- basically two things, maybe three, that can't be amended. One of them expired. It's called keeping the Fugitive Slave Law till 1809. It was a 20-year extension of the Fugitive Slave Law, which, of course, had to do with <laughs> protecting the slavery interests of the South. And the other provision, which actually has this impact as well, is there's only one thing you can't change in the Constitution, just one thing. Equal representation in the Senate. You can get rid of the president, you can get rid of the Supreme Court, you can do whatever you want, except every state gets two senators. Or it could be one, it has to be equal. And so that is, in theory, unamendable, although there's some debate about it. But you see, that's all related to protecting this. And, and the great compromises, as we know, at the Constitutional Convention all had to do with the fear of particularly the slave states, that somehow the other states would get together. Uh, one reason they wanted the convention was the fear that three quarters, somehow three-quarters of the states uh, excuse me, two thirds of the house in the Senate would vote for an amendment that would eliminate slavery and somehow they would get three quarters of the states to approve that. So yes, this is a tragic uh, aspect of our original document that was significantly addressed in, in the first great wave of constitutional amendments after the Bill of Rights which was Reconstruction. But uh, yes, this is, uh, the Constitution was significantly about that. It would not have been approved or ratified had it not been for those concessions almost certainly from a historical point. Of
1: Peter, you already started to speak to this, but I want to I follow up. Um, in reading your book, Article 5 embodies this, I think, really underappreciated tension uh, in, in the Constitution. It's both reflected in the constitutional debates but also embedded within the Constitution itself between institutionalist theories of, of democracy and governance and a more radical grassroots, grassroots theories of, of resistance and change. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about how Article Five embodies that tension um, and then how you see that continuing to play out today. Um, I'm, I'm thinking even specifically uh, as we see the word democracy becoming politicized and uh, parties removing the term and replacing it in their state platforms.
0: Well, it's, it's fascinating uh, and, and striking to think about how the debates of the, f- what at that point were in the burgeoning groups we now would call federalists and anti-federalists are still so much alive today. And, and Article Five in many ways is the, is the, is, uh, the centerpiece of that. Uh, Russ mentioned before the debates between Hamilton and Mason, Hamilton being the standard bearer for the Federalist position. Hamilton envisioned a, a federal regime that, uh, is in the book, we said the Constitution would erect a tall rampart around the federal government and that it would be able to fend off assaults. Mason uh, feared, in and and his Anti-Federalists, feared a, a strong central government and worked diligently at the convention to create uh, mechanisms by which abuses could be addressed by the people. It's interesting. uh, Mason famously remarked after the convention adjourned that he wouldn't support the the Constitution and that he would rather chop off his hand than sign the final document. And so although the Anti-Federalists worked diligently to oppose ratification, their handiwork still remains. And so we see to this day, uh, these two theories of um, federal, federal power uh, leading uh, to national unity and the advance of, of, of policy priorities and this more um, uh, bottom-up checking nature to Article 5. I'd also say that, that we, we've seen this throughout history. Uh, if you look at the Progressive Era, for example, um, although we think of the Progressive Era amendments as being proposed by Congress and ratified by the states using the normal mechanism, in fact, when you actually look at history intently, you realize that we got very close to a successful convention call at the turn of the century. And in many ways, it was this successive round of applications for a convention, starting with Nebraska um, in, I believe, 1895, that really uh, a- a- awakened Article 5 after, at a time when Leading scholars, including uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was a political scientist at Princeton at the time, future president, uh, remarked in his uh, magnum opus, his major academic work, that he thought Article Five was dead, Uh, and and and, must never be changed. Yeah, (laughs) two decades later, uh, he is he sits as president when uh, the the. Pioneering progressive era amendments are reformed, are, are ratified. Direct
2: election of senators, the income tax,
0: women's right to vote, and yes, prohibition. And so this <laughs> you can you can see the, this what we call in the book attention uh, of of Article Five endorses both a federalist understanding of, of constitutionalism and constitutional change, and also an anti federalist vision, uh, and and this is a tension that is very much alive with us today.
1: So we've already started to uh, discuss, uh, and, and you reference freely George Washington. He said, "Quote: Not free from imperfections, but as a constitutional door is opened for future amendments and and alterations." So what Article Five did is it left an acknowledgement that the American experiment was a work in progress. Um, so I wonder if you can talk about this other dual jeopardy, as you call it, to to the Constitution about ossification and stagnancy. So we, we we've had these periods um, that are that coincide with with hyperpartisanship and polarization in the past, where there have been moments of progress, um, but we also have long periods of stagnation, which we seem to be in now. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about this other profound state of jeopardy that the Constitution is in, um, and perhaps the ways in which the Constitution, do you think that these movements for a constitutional convention now uh, reflect a crisis of legitimacy for the Constitution?
2: Well, I think they do, and I think that's why we were very careful in this book. We, we We were putting out two warnings. One warning is about the possibility of right-wing capture of the Constitution and gutting it. The other is that the Constitution cannot be changeless. This is what Dr. Sabato wrote his book about. He just explained that he proposed, I I read it, there were perfectly reasonable proposals, and and, and now it's almost impossible, partly because it's very hard to do. it. We just simply have the hardest Constitution in the world to amend, period. But if you put on top of that horrible partisanship, nothing can be fixed. And we you know, our the right to vote's being gutted by the Supreme Court. There's no right to vote in the Constitution. The Electoral College is still there. We don't have anything in our Constitution about the, protecting the environment or, or climate change. These are things that, that maybe should be considered by reasonable, rational people to update our Constitution. But the system is set up in a way that has essentially bought this idea, we actually call it sort of the archaics, where people People just think, well, that's that's really never going to happen again. And so what do we do? And I'll let Peter say more about this. We basically obsess about the Supreme Court. Supreme Court is the locus of power in this country now, not the people. And the Constitution begins with the words we the people. So if you could say more about that.
0: Sure. I mean both jeopardies are grounded in in again this, this notion above this revolution. What was it? that this founding generation saw, as what did it mean to live in in, an American democracy, and what did it mean uh, for this new, quite novel, theory of American constitutionalism. And a key tenet of that new theory was that the people constitute their government, and the people are empowered to change that government, and in the case of amendment, through these settled procedures. And we argue in the book that over the last probably half century. That notion has been changing. We've been losing sight of this, this revolutionary uh, ideal, and that we should be crafting a constitutional politics that allows the people to be debating constitutional matters as a first order inquiry, rather than obsessing about these second order questions about differing modes of constitutional interpretation, the mechanisms of, of uh, judicial elabor- elaboration of constitutional meaning and that we should have a, uh, you know, a flowering of, of American debate about, uh, about our fundamental law. And that debate can only happen through Article 5. It happens through both a culture of, of, of constitutionalism, but also a process, uh, and a process that is workable and that is fundamentally popular in nature, that gives new life to those. The, the invocation of the Constitution, we the people.
2: Yeah, you can think of Article 5 as a healing mechanism, a release valve. Doesn't work in this environment.
1: You, you also write in the book about how the bulk of amendments, and almost all of them, have made the federal Constitution the dominant repository for, for civil rights, uh, the, and the federal courts as the place that adjudicates those rights. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what animates the movement you study in the book um, and their use of Article 5 and its provisions um, to deconstruct federal power and to roll back rights?
2: Well, as Peter, of course, pointed out, the very origins of our country and Mason and the anti-federalists, many of the people in this state did not buy into this idea of a strong federal government. So it's not as if this is some completely new thing. On the other hand, after the Reconstruction amendments, after the battles against Jim Crow, after uh, uh, Brown versus Board and all the, the advances from our viewpoint that were made, there was resistance. Um, there was particular resentment uh, to the Supreme Court rulings that uh, some believe was one of the most important. And Baker versus Carr and Reynolds versus Sims would said that, that when you're in your state legislatures, it has to be one person, one vote. It can't be, you know. 22 state senators, and one of them, you know, one of them represents 50,000 people, and some of them represent 10,000. So this was a major decision, and and it, it it triggered the first sort of, if you will, modern, if we can include our lifetime as modern, sure. uh, uh, <laughs> movements led by a guy from his state. I tease about this a little bit. Everett McKinley Dirksen, great senator, mm-hmm. who action Republican senator who helped make sure we got the civil rights law, but he. He was part of this effort to stop our reapportionment. And he tried to get it through Congress, through a constitutional amendment. Was not able to do it, so they kicked off the desire to have constitutional convention to do this. And this goes back to your original question about preserving the rights of certain parts of the, of the country. So they started really moving on this thing. I think they were within one or two states, right? Peter, of, of getting the- Wisconsin, Wisconsin was, was the Detroit. definitive vote, yeah. so I started it, he yeah, ended yeah. it. <laughs> Dirksen suddenly dies. And my state, that hasn't been doing very good things lately, but uh, a lot of times, uh, stops it. But that's how, how close it came. Uh, and, and so this is, a, uh, this is a movement that then transformed itself, one would argue. Based on something you may or may know about, um, in the in the 70s in California, there was something called Proposition 13. A guy named Howard Jarvis used the direct democracy uh, mechanisms that they have in that state, but not in my state, to pass a, a severe uh, limitation on the use of the property tax. So people at the national level started saying, "Wait a minute, we should have a balanced budget amendment. You know, we have to balance our budget at home. Why shouldn't there be a balanced budget amendment at the federal level?" I mean, you know, it's not an irrational argument, but It was very popular in conservative circles and it passed many states. I think we see this as part of a a string. And what then put it into overdrive was the election of a certain Barack Obama who became president, which of course I was very happy about, but a lot of people were very unhappy about it. And they saw, even before the man was sworn in, they said he's a socialist and he's gonna do this and he's gonna do that, and all of a sudden there was a torrent of applications for conventions, right?
0: Right. And, and so this movement really took, took root in, in, in the mid-2000s and has been gaining steam ever since. Um, but it really does find its roots in the Dirksen era. Uh, and, and, and the reaction to the liberalizing uh, role of the Warren Court, uh, which you know, paved the way for many of the civil rights advances. Uh, in, in the '60s, and so it that it is it's part of the story about this um, uh, effort to to use the amendment mechanism to check um, th- these expanses.
3: Just a little follow up on that, and uh, that the Dirksen uh, effort was was very interesting, and he was he was an interesting guy, and unfortunately he did die. I think had he remained in office, a lot of better things would have happened. He died, I think, in 1970 or somewhere in that late 60s, '60s, something like that. And uh, given the norms, the political norms of the time, let's suppose they had succeeded with a convention. With Dirksen as the godfather of this to some degree, uh, would a convention have been more limited? Would it have been able to stick to one or two or three things as opposed to what is likely to happen today
2: becoming a runaway Convention dealing with that anything and everything—that would be my guess. First of all, a, a number of uh, historians believe that Dirksen didn't really want this thing; oh. that he felt that he had because he was part of the oh, cause so. and he had to do it.
1: But you're saying you he was a
2: politician? No, yeah, oh, kind of. <laughs> yeah, <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> senators from Wisconsin are purely principled. Yeah. But uh, of course, but he, uh, not really. <laughs> but uh, he—I'm guessing. There was not this sort of, frankly, crazy right movement. You did have your John Birchers and some of these people. But that wasn't the tenor of, of these individuals. No, they didn't like the reapportionment. Thing. Yes, they wanted to create something called the Court of the States, which would have allowed a court to overrule uh, rulings of the Supreme Court. But there wasn't this sort of uh, social issue, anti-democratic Stuff so I, I'm guessing would not have been the end of the world. I remember growing. See, I grew up in the, in the listening to Illinois media, so they were always talking about a constitutional convention. a big con, con con was like this thing at the state level. So um, I think that there would have been a limited, but but they were worried. We re, we have in the book Robert Kennedy warning about this. Um, you know, William Proxmire questioning Dirksen making him ask, answer questions about you know can this thing be limited he actually admitted that it couldn't be limited
0: mm. and and this is key i think it, you know it, we could debate the, the role of, of dirksen and kind of as, as leading the movement but what is clear from from the historical record is that dirksen did not he did not subscribe to the view that the convention could be legally limited and there is this fascinating debate that we include in the book that uh, between Senator Proxmire and Senator Dirksen, where um, uh, Dirksen says, quite emphatically, that when the convention meets, it's the people's business. And there's no way that Congress or, or state legislatures through applications could limit that. And so even then, we're seeing um, the, the The kind of contours of the debate that is with us today. The runaway convention is the term that's often used, and one
2: of the most famous constitutional law professors uh, in the 20th century was Charles Black, and he said, "What do you mean runaway convention? There's nothing to run away from. I mean, it's just open."
1: (laughs) Well, there is a great. You talk about the great deal of uncertainty around. Uh, around the Constitutional Convention and, and, and who would have the power to select delegates um, uh, and how much power each state would have at such a convention. Um, I, I wonder if you can talk just a little bit more about you know, where the different legal theories are, are, are uh, manifesting sure. <laughs> on the sides, especially of, the, of this current movement.
0: Well, I think, it's as with all constitutional questions, it's important to start with the text. What does the Constitution actually say? Uh, Article 5, if you read it, it's quite short. You can see it at the beginning of the book. It's, uh, it's silent as to these questions. Um, and as we said before, this is a reality James Madison noted even uh, shortly after the convention adjourned, that there weren't these sufficient constitutional regulations. Over the centuries, uh, there has been some consensus. Um, that consensus now is being challenged quite rigorously on the right. Um, But generally speaking, we don't know how delegates would be selected. Uh, Those on the right now claim that state legislatures would be able to appoint them. Because in their view, Article 5 uh, conceives of a convention not of the people, but a convention of the states. They have adopted a quite Articles of Confederation notion to Article 5 that um, supposes that that the states constituted the federal regime, and thus it is up to the states as sovereign entities to amend that regime. We would point you to the first line of the Constitution that says, we the people, uh, to counter that theory. The Articles of Confederation was much more blunt about where, from from whence its power came. It says, we the delegates of the states. So that's one theory, that that state legislatures would appoint the delegates. Um, The alternative theory is that. You know that there would be, there should be a popular election, as there are in many states that have held state-level constitutional conventions. Illinois being a good example, Montana being another in recent memory. Um, And then there are a whole—I mean, we could go on the the myriad list of unanswered questions. I think the most important one uh, is how would the convention actually vote? Um, Contemporary activists claim that that the convention would. Adopt its rules and adopt proposed amendments by a simple majority vote along state lines, meaning that Wyoming would have the same exact vote as California. So we're talking extreme malapportionment. Um, that is not a settled matter of law, um, and you know it's quite possible to imagine another scenario, something based on proportional representation or the like. But I think the the key element is that we don't know. Uh, And and it is quite a vast void. Uh, And one of our deepest concerns is, were this convening to be triggered, there really are no mechanisms to resolve these uncertainties. Um, It's quite possible the courts wouldn't get involved. We argue they shouldn't get involved. It's really outside their power. Uh, And so that's why we end the book where we do, saying we need to reform this. We need answers to these questions, and we can't allow this... this, um, these uncertainties to continue, it's too dangerous.
2: And I don't want you to leave without understanding what's going on in this void that Peter just so perfectly described. So there's these two theories. But the far right is acting on the first theory, and they're answering all these questions. So I refer you, if I'm allowed to read a passage, from a chapter entitled What Trump and the Tea Party Couldn't Do. And uh, there's a quote from a guy I used to serve with in the Senate. You may have heard, with, heard of Rick Santorum, who's working for these people. He says, we're planning on putting resources, putting in place to get us to the place where the safety's off and we have a live weapon in our hands. And we describe in this chapter, and if, if, if the other stuff seems uh, too, too uh, sort of constitutional lawish for you guys, just read this and, and you'll say, uh-oh. Uh, because, of course, they gathered in Virginia, in Williamsburg, and they had a mock convention. And yeah, they had a guy show up at the beginning dressed up like George Washington, and they all told each other, you know, this is gonna, you're going to be like the founding, founding people in our, in our country. Uh, but they weren't goofing around, they weren't playing. They were very, very effective at doing this. Uh, we write, even to a casual observer, the debate would have been impressive. Delegates, the vast majority of whom were conservative Republicans aligned with the Tea Party movement, approached the affair seriously and engaged in good faith debate. Working committees, parsed amendment texts, weighed the legal meaning of certain terms and phrases, and hashed out draft proposals. When the proposals were brought to the floor, objections were raised and compromise reached. And uh, then, as Peter just pointed out, they answered the question about how would the voting be done. Meeting and state delegations to deliberate against themselves. Delegates ended the meeting by rendering the state's single vote on each proposal, and in so doing, the dramatic reading of the roll call caused uh, those present to celebrate the element of the convention process most essential to their plan to radically can't transform American fundamental law. It's malapportionment. It is the Electoral College on steroids. One vote per state, not we the people, so they're way ahead. They're already training state legislators who they will name if this happens. I know who they are in Wisconsin. Uh, They are not my favorite politicians. They are the ones who would be over there writing your constitution. So uh, this is really a a, a, a scary thing.
3: Russ and Peter, tell the audience please who's funding this and how it's being organized
0: well it's a it 's kind of a who 's who array of um, of frequent funders of of right causes uh, the Koch brothers are involved um, uh, the Mercer family is involved and it 's important to note that this is a very advanced sophisticated operation it's it 's quite remarkable um, they have uh, you know uh, uh, you know, state captains in every single state legislative district they're actively en- engaging uh, state legislative leaders it's a very sophisticated operation um, and so that's why we think it's so important for people to be uh, to be involved in this and to be to note, note what's coming down the pike because these uncertainties they're a right answer is being written about these questions it's being uh, it's being put in publications by uh, groups like the American um, Legislative Ex- Exchange Council, ALEC, uh, and it, it's being put to state legislators as settled legal fact. Uh, and, and we go through some of these publications in the book. It, it's it's quite shocking uh, the, the, the manner in which these documents are written. It's, uh, they, they speak as if these issues are completely settled, that there's no debate. Uh, and, and some of the answers are. I don't understand how they have legal basis, uh, and and even debatable legal basis, and so it's really quite troubling. And I think we, people need to think about this, uh, and and need to be engaging in serious debate and discussion about this fundamental uh, constitutional mechanism. My
2: wife Christine and my brother-in-law were <laughs> intrepid enough to go down to Wisconsin State Capitol and attend one of these gatherings. And it was undercover. Her. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't go down there. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: and well, you is, were. So this is uh, this, this is over a, a year. 20, so 20, literally, 21. but yeah, not figuratively, undercover.
1: Was, uh,
2: <laughs> so she, you know, Meckler was there, Santorum was there. This thing, uh, and you know, there were perf- perfectly earnest people checking people in, uh, the way Christine reported it. So uh, yeah.
1: And so, they're also presenting workshops at gatherings of state legislators as well. S- so the L- there, I think there was yeah. one in Arizona just a few weeks ago. Right. And so right. they do pre-conference workshops as we would at an academic no, <laughs> conference. And so they present it just as Peter described, we And we're going to train you how to do this to present it.
0: Right. And, and we note in the, in the prologue um, a very fascinating occurrence in Montana, a state that you think would be <laughs> quite behind one of these efforts, uh, an application effort failed, uh, on part in part because of the efforts of the John Birch Society, which uh, is quite conservative, but they uh, <laughs> share concerns about this. Uh, They're and, worried about what might happen. Right, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and uh, uh, it's interesting because a, a conservative uh, state senator remarked about how this went down in in the Montana State House, and it involved a. a you know, a meeting, and she used she her phrase was "whining and dining" of state legislators that occurred outside public view before a committee had had taken up the application itself. Uh, and so, uh, like I said before, there are right answers to the myriad array of questions. That there are no answers, that there are answers just being divined from from thin air, and uh, that it, it's problematic in many ways. But principally because, as we say. There's no way, there's really no mechanism to resolve these questions with certainty. Uh, If the courts don't get involved, and if a convention is left to its own devices to answer the questions, I mean, without even the most basic assessment of how do you vote, how do you resolve it?
3: Yeah, and let's not forget the composition of the current Supreme Court. Uh, Just for the younger people, the John Birch Society spent the 1950s trying to convince people that Dwight Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander in World War II, was a communist that was their number one objective throughout the 1950s. I mean the Republicans isolated them. They were they were considered so extreme they didn't even want to have them in their midst. Well things have changed. You know, we've got a lot of successors to the John Birch Society and they're right at the heart of uh, American politics. You mentioned Alec. They kicked Alec. them,
2: out of, Wisconsin. Uh, they kicked them out of Orange County during Bird Society. Yes. So where did they move? Appleton, Wisconsin. Appleton, the Wisconsin. birthplace of Joe McCarthy. Well, that was <laughs> your area. You should yeah, have done something yeah, about right. it. Yeah, okay. anyway, Sorry. Is there a question there? Did well, you know <laughs> no. I,
3: there, well, I was going to say about Alec. Uh, see, they have organized and been extremely well funded for years and years and years. And as Russ knows well, the Democrats did almost nothing for years and years. They're finally starting to organize for state legislative elections and to use a similar mechanism. But they're decades,
2: really, not just years, Absolutely. but decades behind. Well, man, I was a state senator, and I go, well, why are these Republicans running for city council and school board? You know, that's not where the power is. And sure enough, they were doing what we we called maybe you guys do, farm team. Yes. And, you know, these people may have started on, uh, you know, the town board in Lodi, Wisconsin, but now some of them are congressmen and senators, and, and, and so they, the right, had the long view.
1: The left, for this, well, for the left for so long has looked to the federal government, and That's I think exactly there right. is a statistic from uh, around the time of Obama, President Obama's election that there was something like 50,000 people who wanted to run in state and local elections, but because it was all funneled through his campaign and not through the national party, it was a lost opportunity right, for the Democrats. And so there has not been yeah, that considerable thinking on the left side about how to organize at the local level until you know, perhaps 2016, I think they started to take it a little bit more seriously. Exactly. <laughs> Russ, cool.
0: mean, go, no, go ahead. Russ mentioned before, but we, we talk in the book about this phenomenon called the archaics. And it's this idea that's quite common on the left. I would say it's it it, it finds uh, devotees across the ideological spectrum, but it's quite common on the left, of just thinking that some things don't really matter that much. Uh, that Questions are, are you know, not, not important. And it's quite common with constitutional provisions, things that, oh, they're not worth, they're not worth our time. They, they'll never be a problem. Uh, we talk in the book about how this was a common view of the Second Amendment. From the 1970s up to the 2010s, people said, oh, the Second Amendment's not that big of a deal. And it's quite common on the left. And, and we argue that Article 5 is just another one of these supposedly archaic things that oh, we can ignore it. It's not that big of a problem.
2: I mean, in fairness, we're trying to say to people, this isn't January sixth. This is legal. What they're trying to do is completely legal. You can't sort of tar them with this idea that they're, you know, undercutting our democracy by doing something that the founders say, go ahead and do it. <laughs> so that's the... that's part of the reason we're warning people.
1: So we want to open up to an audience Q and A, but I, I do also, as we as we do that, I, I want to ask you, um, you know, there. There is actually near universal agreement that our political system is not working well across a broad range of of surveys. Um, And public support is actually quite high um, for fundamental change to make our political system work better. Of course, the challenge is that there's both substantive and significant disagreement about what that direction of change should be. Um, What do you imagine as a path forward for the constitution and for the legitimacy of democracy and self-governance, especially with the concerns about ossification and stagnation that you describe in the book.
0: Start with Article
2: Five.
0: What to do about it? That's part four. Yeah. Go ahead. So uh, this is part four of the book. Um, it, it, it's why we ended the book where we did. Uh, it. We need to rekindle, like we said. I said at the beginning. A. a Constitu- uh, a new constitutional politics. You're right. I think people are feeling for the first time, well, in recent memory perhaps, um, a, 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 almost a visceral belief that, that we need change, fundamental change. And that's the exact same idea that the founding generation had. How do we actually provide for this kind of change? We shouldn't need to resort to violence. We should have these settled means for a sovereign people to reform the, the constitutional order. And the way to do that is through Article 5. It's through procedures that can channel debate toward the high ideals of constitutional reform, and that uh, we can pursue that reform in a manner that is popular and democratic, that gives an animating animating reality to the the notion that we the people constitute the government, and also through a procedure that's settled that we can actually have a procedure that people agree on, such that we can have the, the substantive debate that's necessary, rather than debate, being concerned about all of these, these, these secondary questions about how things can go wrong.
2: And, and, and to sort of take that to the broader question, that this, the predicate for that to happen is that this political culture has to change. I want you to know, because I was a legislator for 28 years, members of Congress don't want to behave like this. They're responding. Some of them do now, yeah, but the people, say, yeah, let's some do. But, but the ones that Thanks. I serve with and others who sort of felt they had to veer to the right, it's because their constituents started demanding that they not work with the other party. When I was a 29-year-old kid running for the state senate in a rural district with a ton of hair, I was about 110 pounds, I'd come to a door, and I'd go, hi, I'm Russ Feingold. I'm running for the state senate. And if I said anything about Democrat or Republican, they'd close the door. They'd say, we don't want to hear that. We want to hear your ideas. Well, that changed in 2008, 2009. And they started threatening, particularly on the Republican side, anybody that would work with the other side. So it used to be the greatest thing in the world. I used to be able to go to town meetings and just say, hi, I'm here. I'm doing a bill with John McCain. Yay. you know, We're in a Republican county. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Because they just wanted you to work together. Well, somehow, the society has to decide that it's a community again. And if that doesn't happen, none of these other things can happen. Politicians have to be rewarded for working with the other side. And I'm going to say this again. I get in trouble with my liberal friends. Liz Cheney. What she did was heroic. Now, I don't think she's that big of a right winger as people think. She was representing Wyoming. And they threw her out. When she runs for president, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to vote for her because of her singular act of courage. Because that was in the spirit of us all being a nation and the rule of law. I mean, I'd never vote for her, I'm sure, because of my views on issues. But the country, I hope, begets an appetite to have somebody with that kind of courage and integrity uh, to do something like that. And it wasn't easy. She gave up her seat. But her leadership position. But and, so, and our leadership is our leadership post? I mean, that's a profile and courage. Well, she's already gotten a profile and courage for that. <laughs> but I mean this this is what the country needs is people who will do things like that.
1: Hi podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to virginia.edu. Until next time.